believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way, love is what you make of it. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani, and I'd like to welcome you to another self-coaching session where real-life emotional struggle, whether it's anxiety, depression, relationship conflict, losing weight, or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed, teaching you to become your own best coach. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome back my daughter, Lauren Luciani, who, after last month's wedding, is now Lauren Simonian. She's a licensed self-coaching wellness coach who has dedicated her life to her own personal development and her pursuit to help others realize a life of freedom and joy. She's also a trained mindfulness teacher who has worked with students for 13 years in the public school setting. And most recently, Lauren created a curriculum and launched one of the state's first successful health and wellness classes for students grades K through five. So welcome back, Lauren. I was hoping that after last week's podcast, we could take a deeper dive into mindfulness and how we might apply this seemingly simple concept to challenge our most stubborn emotional habits and struggles. So perhaps you could begin with how you might define mindfulness. Of course. Thank you so much for having me back on this show, uh, especially to talk about mindfulness, which I'm really passionate about because mindfulness is something I've been studying and practicing for a long time. And the definition of mindfulness, quite simply, is just being aware of the present moment. And it, it is a practice. And the practice involves focusing and becoming acutely aware of what you are noticing right now. So it's including the sensory perceptions around you, as well as noticing your feelings or emotions internally without judgment and without interpretation. Hmm. That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, so I'm mindful right now of this podcast and my mind has a tendency to keep saying, yeah, but what are you going to do after the podcast? And uh, don't forget to, and so that's kind of a natural tendency, isn't it, for the mind to drift away from the moment? Absolutely. Yes, which is why this practice can be quite revolutionary, because I think a lot of people, until they become aware of the power of anchoring your thought in the moment, they don't realize how freeing it can really be. So although mindfulness sounds so simple in theory, it's actually a, a fairly intense practice. But once you're able to master it, even just for a moment, you'll see a big shift in, in your life. At mm. least that was what was true for me. Yeah, I remember when I first tried meditation and the instructor said, you know, breathe in and breathe out and focus on the breath. And, and it sounded so simple, right? Breathe in, breathe out, focus on the breath and, and let, let any thought go as it drifts in. Let it just blow out the other side and just come back to the breath. And I said, oh, this is easy. And so there I was watching my breath for five seconds and wham, here comes one thought. And here I go back to my breath. Wham, there's another thought. <laughs> so this went on and on. I mean, I, I don't think I lasted more than eight seconds without an intruding thought. You know, it's to quiet the mind, you know, like you say, and, and that's, I guess, the operative word, 
practice. So this this is this is like meditation and it requires practice. How similar is mindfulness to meditation? Mindfulness is a form of meditation. It is just a practice that you can actually use throughout your day. So mindfulness meditation can be a way of life and you can practice it in different ways, but just becoming aware of the thing you're doing in the moment is considered a mindfulness meditation. So the, that eight seconds of breathing that you did um, is actually a wonderful portal into that freeing of your mind. Hmm. Yeah, I, rem I remember someone talking about walking meditation, uh, and I always thought you had to be sitting in a lotus position, but, but they were talking about just meditation just in, in movement in general. So would you say it's not important to be mindful in a lotus position, but to do it throughout your day? I would say it is far easier to be mindful in a lotus position than it is to be mindful throughout your day. However, I, I believe that practicing mindfulness while you are going about your day is probably the fastest and most effective way to revolutionize your experience with life. While it can be really helpful to do a seated meditation, it can be really calming for the brain. And it's a great way to practice because there are hardly any interruptions other than your own thoughts, which we know can be an issue. But when you're interacting with the world, there's even more input that you have to work with. So it becomes, yeah, it can become a practice with whatever you are experiencing, a mindful walk, uh, mindfully washing the dishes in the dance practice that I I'm involved in. We do a warm up and then there's this 20 minutes of what they call a moving meditation. And it's just a free dance. And it's really, really powerful to move from the instincts of your body without your mind really controlling your future thoughts. There's no choreographed what comes next. It's what's arising in this moment and how do I respond to it? Yeah, you said before about whatever you're doing, washing a dish. I, I've I've often used that same image with my patients, uh, and and I say, you know, when you wash a dish, for example, you feel that dish, feel the water, feel the soapiness of it. Be totally into that process. So I guess I guess mindfulness is really a way of engaging yourself without distraction. Now. As a psychologist, I know that working with people with these distractive thoughts is, is really always a challenge in many ways, especially with anxiety or depression. But let's go back to the dish. So basically, the more you become in contact with what you're doing, the more your thoughts become part of that process. So in other words, there's a melding of, of what we're doing in that moment with the would you call it a non-thinking how, how would you call it yeah interesting i would call it an, an acute awareness so the thinking is okay as long as you're thinking about the thing that you are doing yeah and and i, I actually just the other day was making lunch and as i was making my lunch i was thinking about how i needed to eat it in order to get back to work and it just crossed my mind that i wasn't actually enjoying or even noticing the process. Um, I was just sort of thinking about what came next. And so it, I realized in that moment that if I'm not even focused on what I'm doing right now, making lunch, then what chance do I have of actually being present and enjoying the lunch I made? And then when I get to work, am I going to be thinking about the next thing? And so it's, it's a 
an interesting realization when you realize that as your brain tries to focus on what comes next, you're actually missing your day. You're missing your, your life. I think what you're saying about, you know, eating your lunch, I mean, that's, that's the quintessential, I feel, insight into mindfulness in that whatever we're doing, if we allow those intrusive thoughts to pull us away, then the possibility of that experience becomes muted to the extent that we're pulled away. So, so this is why mindfulness is such an important concept, because essentially it's a concept for living more if you will, correctly. But, but let me ask you this, because this is what, what always kind of confuses me and people I try to express this to. And that's that, well, you can't be mindful all the time. And obviously that's the case. I mean, I doubt, I doubt anyone could be mindful 24-7. So, so how, do you, how do you reconcile that fact that our minds just can't be corralled that completely? I don't think that the objective is to be mindful all the time. I think that really the goal is to find moments of mindfulness, even just one moment a day where you're fully alive in that moment, and that that one moment will begin to permeate all the other moments. And there'll be glimmers of connectivity to your world throughout your day. And it it truly doesn't have to be a practice that is happening all the time. And of course, when you think about it practically, your mind has to think into the future in order to make plans to have goals and aspirations. Uh, It has to think into the past in order to learn from mistakes. And so there has to be that time traveling in your mind. In my opinion, there needs to be like a, a way to, as you say, corral your mind and anchor into the present at certain moments throughout your day. And just that alone can change your entire relationship with, with your world. You talk about going into the future. Well, first of all, I always tell my, my patients and people I work with, you know, you, you can't be conscious of your, your present 24-7, but you could keep coming back to it. So you find yourself drifting off into those future thoughts. Come back, come back to center, come back to center. So that's the practice involved in all of this. But when you say uh, we can't, uh, are, in, in terms of projecting our thoughts into the future, keep in mind that you know we are kind of a species that has evolved, and that that anticipation of things in the future is part of our survival. You know, in, in cave person times, there were probably a strong need to know what kind of uh, saber-toothed tigers lived in the cave down the hill and all that kind of stuff and to anticipate that and be cautious. So we have what I might call an anticipatory mind. We, we, we do have a tendency, if not a strong inclination, to think forward into the future. Now, the distinction I always make is whether those are neutral, practical thoughts that protect us and help us navigate through our lives, or whether they're toxic thoughts. The worry thoughts are the great example. What if this happens? And what if that happens? You know, we don't worry about uh, things going right. Gee, I hope I don't win the lottery. But, but we worry about things going wrong. So those are the thoughts I think you're talking about when you say, you know, when you go into that future, sure, we have to prepare and we have calendars and we do all these things to get ourselves ready for life. But you're not talking about letting those thoughts that are toxic kind of whirl around in our head, are you? No, no. I, I simply was talking about having 
that space for planning for practical purposes and trying to sift out, as you say, those anticipatory thoughts that are that are worrisome. Actually, it's really interesting to think people engage in these adrenaline producing intense activities like skydiving or rock climbing or bungee jumping. And if you talk to someone who does that, they will explain the feeling or the sensation that they have in that moment. And it it's just interesting to think that people often will put themselves in these intense situations just to feel that relief from the thinking mind for for a moment or two. So when you're skydiving, of course, your thoughts about what you're going to eat for lunch are not active in your mind. You're, you're fully embraced in that experience. So I just find it interesting how much the human mind is actually craving to be tamed so that it can have a little bit of peace. <laughs> to be tamed. When I'm skydiving, I'm only thinking about one thing, and that's not crashing into the earth. But uh... You, you say tame, that, that brings up, I remember I was taking a yoga class with uh, a very good friend called Rama. And Rama was telling us, well, we were talking in general about meditation. And he was saying, you know, the mind is like a jungle filled with screeching, screaming monkeys, chattering here and there. And, and he said, you know, what you need to do if you're going to be successful at meditation slash mindfulness is you have to tame your monkeys. I always love that. The thoughts that would pull us away from the moment, the thoughts that would pull us away from being mindful and present, those are the chattering monkeys that want to grab our attention. So taming monkeys, that's the practice. I guess I guess that's what we're talking about when, when we say practice, practice, practice. We're talking about taming monkeys, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, I love that metaphor. I And I think in taming your monkeys, you first have to realize that they're there. And I think we all have them. But but that awareness and, and the inner listening to hear what's actually going on in your mind. Um, and as you've always told me growing up, not everything you think is true. So becoming aware of the thoughts is the first step, I would say, in being able to clear them from your mind and and really to challenge them also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not everything is true. I always, I always, you know, try to make a distinction between factual reality and emotional fiction. Often, two times we we look at feelings as if they're facts, and especially with emotional struggle, with anxiety or depression, we treat feelings as if they're facts. I'll never be okay. Uh, I'll never get that job. You know, things like that. Those those are feelings. I feel I'll never get that job. So we have to make a better distinction as to those, which I called earlier, those toxic thoughts. Because if we're going to free ourselves to allow ourselves to be present, we have to liberate ourselves from, from that which is pulling us away from the present. So how would you help someone liberate themselves from those tugging monkeys? How would you help them? What kind of techniques are there? that you could start to train yourself to be more present? Mm. There are many. I, you mentioned earlier the the breath work. And although that seems incredibly simple, especially because we're all breathing all the time, if you can anchor your thoughts fully on your breath, that can truly help to be a bridge that connects you to the to the present moment. And it would be really focusing on that inhale 
and focusing on how the air is moving through your body, filling up your lungs, and then moving out of your body. Just one conscious breath can be a full meditation. And so that actually can bring you back. It can clear those thoughts even just for a moment so that you have a little bit of clarity. Uh, there's also, there, there are all different types of breath work that one can practice. Um, and it, it's a really great way to clear the mind and, and the body also. As you were talking, I was just thinking, anyone listening to this podcast right now, if, if you're paying attention and really digesting, that's a form of mindfulness, right? You know, you're, you're engaged in a way that, that you are absorbed in, in, in this perhaps learning experience by hearing all these wonderful things we're trying to <laughs> hand out to everyone. But, but it's really important to know that when you read a book, when you watch a movie, when, you know, we, we all have that capacity to be mindful, but we're not, we're not really applying it beyond being kind of hooked into a kind of stimulus that grabs us. Uh, and, and I know, Lauren, you're a, a devotee of Eckhart Tolle, and, and I'm going to paraphrase something I read from him, and you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But I always remember he, he talked about when you, when you go out on for a walk and, and you see a tree, you know, our mind has been, you know, so programmed to, to kind of judge that and to interpret that that's a tree. And trees are either maples or they are the sycamores or they are this or that. So, so our mind tends to then pull away from really experiencing the tree or the treeness of that tree. So when I go out for a jog or something, I, I try to do that. I'm not very good at it, but I try not to really have thoughts about what I'm seeing, but to experience the tree without interpreting the tree. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that, that does make sense. And I think it also speaks to just the idea of expectations in our life. When we have expectations of the tree or of any of anything, it often will pull us away from the moment. So instead of appreciating the, the, the event that's happening or, or the conversation you're having with a friend and allowing it to be organic and new and interesting, oftentimes we enter a situation with expectations of what will happen. Yeah, but that's a great word, expectations. You're, you're so correct with that. Um, let's, let's apply that, what you just said, to, to the holiday season that's in front of us. Now, with the restrictions and the challenges of this virus, obviously, we're going to have some confused expectations. Uh, we, we're going to have to reinvent, reinterpret the moments that are ahead. Because if we, if we have an expectation of, of a season the way it was, or how you celebrated in Times Square last year, or the family gathering... If you have those expectations, of course, then you can't be in the moment and you're going to have a very difficult holiday season. So going into this holiday season, this is a particularly significant challenge, isn't it? Yes, definitely. I think that, as we mentioned last week and again earlier today, part of being mindful is understanding the internal landscape and understanding what emotions are arising for you in any given moment. And so for me, being a sensitive person, I've already acknowledged that there's a lot of disappointment surrounding this holiday season because 
as an as a newly married uh, woman, I was expecting to have this amazing holiday season where both families meld together and all of this uh, joy and happiness in the, in the gatherings. And as I process in each moment when that disappointment arises, and I fully accept that that is there, it kind of fades over time because I've given it space to come and then to go, as opposed to ignoring it and and saying, oh well, it'll be fine. Um, instead, I actually have learned that it's important to allow that to have some space. And in doing so, you open up room for something new to emerge. So uh, it allows it allows for newness and, and it allows for your present moment experience to be more fulfilling when you actually do arrive at that special occasion. Lauren, tell us about your wedding. And I hope I'm, I'm not putting you on the spot, but your wedding was supposed to be last May. Yeah, just tell us a little bit about the transition you went through with that expectation. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, last May, we were supposed to have a 200-person wedding that we had spent the whole year planning. And of course, a few weeks before, we were forced to cancel because of the environment with COVID. And it was it was almost like a grieving feeling because we had to let go of this vision that we had held so dear and had invested so much emotional energy into. So there was this bit of a grief period and I had to actually accept that for what it was. And I know as a, as a positive person, we're often thinking that we have to, you know, look on the bright side of everything. And although there were definite, definite bright sides, which was that our family was safe and, you know, relative to the state of the world, things were all okay in our small bubble. Um, but that grief of the loss was important. And so I had to allow myself time to really understand that it wasn't going to be the way I wanted to, and it was okay to be sad about that. And so I'm so glad and grateful that I was given the space to feel that way, because as time went on, we were able to create something new and different, which happened to be a very small um, family, immediate family wedding. And the most perfect venue arose. It was all outside. And although there were only about 25 of our closest family members there, and we were practicing social distancing and, and all of the things that we were supposed to do that we thought would interfere with a wedding, it wound up being one of the most memorable experiences, not just because it was my wedding, but because the amount of love in that intimate setting transcended beyond anything I could have ever imagined. Yeah, it was a beautiful wedding and the the sky gods uh, contributed with a perfectly uh, beautiful autumn day. So we were very fortunate. You actually taught me something when I was in high school. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but I was feeling really... Remember every conversation we've ever had. <laughs> it's because you're so mindful. I, I was nervous about an AP exam or something that was coming up. And I wasn't sure if I was going to pass the test or whatever the anxiety was. And I couldn't sleep. And I remember you telling me that you can't, you, or, or you kept telling me you have to risk trusting yourself that in the moment you will have everything you need. You'll have all the capability to respond to whatever it is that comes up. 
in that moment, but you can't possibly have the skills or the tools ahead of time. So the time you're spending thinking about it is not actually preparing you. It's actually hindering you because you want to rely on your instincts and, and all of the skills that you've built up throughout the years. And in that very moment, you will respond in, in the way that's appropriate. And you equated it to a squirrel uh, running across the street and how more times than not, a squirrel will do some sort of crazy dance to get out of the way of the car. And it didn't plan that ahead of time, clearly, but it relied on its, on its survival instincts and was able to avoid the car. Yeah, and not only the squirrel, but let's take the person behind the wheel. If if I'm pulling out of the garage and I say, "What if a squirrel runs in front of my car? Should I should I turn the wheel quick? Should I hit the brake first? So you're getting all this anticipatory anxiety about wondering how you'll handle adversity if it happens, and yet in the moment, if it does happen, if the moment that squirrel runs in front of the car, we're not thinking; we just react. And I, I always tell people I work with, look, how many problems have you solved in your life? A hundred, a thousand, 10,000? One way or another, you get through. So what we have to do is we have to put down some of that kind of fear of living by trying to control life and leave that present moment. We have to put some of that anticipatory fear, distrust, we have to put that down and we have to realize we are survival machines. This whole COVID thing turns out to be a, a Darwinian experience. I mean, look at how we are adapting as a society. You with your wedding, store owners that are opening tents outside and, and bringing out heaters so people can continue to come to their practice. We are evolving and we are adapting. And this is what our species does. So as an individual, the more you can rely on your instinctual survival capacities, those intuitive capacities, the less you have to be braced for the next moment. You can be in this moment. Self-trust, I guess, is what I'm talking about. That's the key. Would you agree that is the key? Yes, I, I think that the self-trust in knowing that in that moment you'll you will have the tools necessary is important. And I think that really is the essence of mindfulness. It's it's when you really do connect to the present moment, that inner wisdom, that it doesn't come from thinking necessarily. It comes from a deeper place of knowing. It, it has the opportunity to arise, and that's where the magic comes from. Hmm. So when you took that that test, and I'm curious, what would be your guess? Do you think you were actually able to follow my sage advice? <laughs> do, you, do you think that you were in that uh, high school situation, classroom? Do you think you were able to risk letting that unfold and just trusting yourself? I remember being able to because that, that metaphor just resonated so deeply for me. And I, I still think about it, obviously, to this day. Mm. Well, I guess I guess all of life is is really a matter of learning to risk trust. To me, with my self coaching philosophy, you know that is the uh, the philosopher's stone. That's that's the key is is self trust. Because without self trust, what do we have? Well, we have insecurity. So insecurity is really the culprit. You know, when we talk about mindfulness and being present. What are the chattering monkeys? And, and I guess one way of, of defining chattering monkeys is that there are insecurities that, that want us to either avoid problems that may be coming up in the future, uh, pull us off the moment because there's a better moment coming up, or we've got to do all these other juggles. It's kind of like 
we're multitaskers. And you know this better than I do uh, as a younger person with your phone. Um, we, we just don't sit in the moment anymore. We're, we're in many moments. You know, we are in this kind of kaleidoscope of moments that we're dealing with texting here and thinking this. And so being, being mindful. Now, now this is something that, that you're going to have to try to answer this because I can't. Do you think younger people have a more difficult time understanding and practicing mindfulness than an older person like myself who, who didn't grow up with all of this stimulation? I would say the stimulation definitely is a deterrent to mindfulness. And I also would say that even though that's really apparent in the lives of children in terms of technology and all the instant gratification stimulus in their lives, I still believe that children have the advantage when learning to study mindfulness or meditation because their programming is much less dense than ours and they have this inner wisdom they're closer to it than we are because they they you know have not had years and years of conditioning but they they have this ability to really truly get lost in the present moment if you've ever watched a child play it's it's magic because they don't they're not concerned about the time they're not concerned about whether or not like the sun is going to set on their you know, experience playing outside. They don't have to worry about the future. They they really are living in the in the moment, and that sort of is the joy of childhood: is not having to worry about anything other than than the moment. We need to learn by observing children and how they connect to life. Uh, one of the things I've always felt was when I think back to my childhood summertime just seemed to last for 20 30 years and it, it just went on forever and and my perception now is that summertime lasts for about eight seconds and we're into fall what's the difference well when i was a kid the difference was as you say i was totally involved in the moments of that summer and those moments made it seem like an infinity by pulling ourselves into our abstract mind thinking heads of today, what we're doing is we're pulling ourselves off of the opportunity to really experience life in a more transcendent, lengthy way. And it's becoming rushed and compressed. So, so with that in mind, go back to your teaching experiences and your current teaching experiences with, with mindfulness. Do you find that the younger grades, the kindergarten grades, uh, are more of a sponge by fifth grade? Is there a difference? Do you see a difference? Slightly, slightly. Uh, yeah, the younger, the younger the kid, the easier it is to instill these sort of practices. Um, but I still, by fifth grade, they're still completely open to it. And I, and I think by fifth grade, the stressors are more intense in their life that they are more, um, they're, they're seeking for that release more than let's say a kindergartner. But in both cases, the willingness is incredible. And I just, I find that kids are living in real time and they're just desperate for you to meet them there. And I think adults are, you know, as you say, pulled in, in so many directions that often we miss these precious opportunities to connect with our children because they're living in a different dimension than us. They're living in this present moment. And often we're concerned about what has to happen next. And so we 
miss we miss those opportunities so often and i think it's just such a great thing to keep in mind that children can be our teacher they can remind us um this is where the joy is in this moment um and actually it's eckhart tolle who talks he talks to parents about this idea of relating to their children in a place from a place of presence is the most powerful way to connect to your child and often what happens is because of the busy nature of our world parents are relating to their child from a space of doing so the conversations are did you finish this did you get dressed um how was school what did you do what, what grades did you get and so they often miss the opportunity to really connect in a present moment sort of way where they can really um bond um from a place of substance hmm. you know i'm going to uh, reiterate you and i had a conversation last week in our first podcast together i'm going to re reiterate two things that we we just discussed and i'd like you to go into it a little deeper and the first was that there were some boys on a playground and there was something that created the atmosphere for them to want to sit down and tell us what they did when they they created a a meditation session for themselves out on the playground and why do you think they did that i think it was probably just a way for them to reset um, they had been practicing this was in the spring so there had been months of practice leading up to that moment and i think they just felt the release through the calming breathing um, and we had talked a lot in class about the difficulty of practicing mindfulness or meditation when surrounded by distraction and so they actually took the practice to to the highest level by sitting in the middle of a busy loud playground and practicing meditation you know what that that is such an important issue and that's that children don't have the vehicle for processing stress strain anxieties not not really we we don't we don't really equip them with what they should be doing now we get we get some of the secondary reactivity when kids are upset and we see them doing destructive things or being pouty or angry or crying or this or that but but we don't give them handles on here's what you can do when you are not feeling okay now maybe these boys were feeling okay and they just were practicing something that they felt was really a lot of fun but i like to imagine because you've told me this story and i've often thought about it i like to imagine that something stressful was going on on that playground or they recalled that that we just learned this this thing called mindfulness or meditation and it's really cool and and let's let's all sit down and just feel that feeling i guess i bring it up because maybe something in children really want to feel that deeper sense of just solace of of being quieted down of you know i talk about the stimulating the hyper stimulus world so maybe something in our kids really long for that solace what do you think i think that there's something in everyone that longs for that solace i just believe that kids have less resistance to it they've had less conditioning to make it feel like it's it's wrong um as adults like we said earlier it, there's just so much stimulus in our minds in terms of future thinking and and problem solving 
that to take a moment to calm down and, and to go into that relaxed state takes more practice than it does for a kid. So a child practicing meditation is probably going to feel the results much more quickly than an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, usually practicing meditation with an adult the first few times, um, it's it's more frustrating than it is relaxing because there's, unfortunately, we, we tend as humans to have this judgment piece that comes up. And so, um, of course, if I were to tell you, take one minute of meditation right now um, as your first time trying it, of course, it's going to be difficult. It's not going to feel like this amazing release the first time you try it because your brain is not used to that. And so it takes it takes time and it takes practice. And our children often are closer to that pure state where it's easier for them to access. So after one or two times, they they start to feel that benefit and that reward. And I think that it, it um, is reinforced for them. And then, yeah, they, they enjoy that release. Would it, would it be um, beyond the pale to imagine a family sitting down to mindfulness practice together, maybe meditation or something? I mean, is that, you know, I, I know the society we live in, and it's, it sounds like that's a bit far-fetched, but I'm wondering... Is there a, a mindfulness practice that would be uh, more palatable to, to families where they could share the experience of just being present? Do you have anything in mind? Yes, absolutely. I think that um, I actually I know of a few families that now do a meditation right before dinner. They do a one minute meditation where they just set a timer and they all are they try to concentrate their thoughts in the moment focus on their breath and then also there are some really great uh, visionary meditations out there they sell different cards or you could just look up on the internet um, called visualizations and those are easier than just focusing on the breath because they give you a thought to focus on it it usually explains some sort of relaxing picture and your job is to uh, clear your mind of all other thoughts and try to focus fully on whatever the description is on the on the visualization. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be really that can be a really easy way for families to practice together, and it only takes a minute or two at most, and it could be a great part of of a daily routine. Yeah, you know, visualization. Uh, if I can just take that and run with it a little bit. Uh, it's a it's a big part of what I do when I work with anxiety people in terms of letting go of worry. Um, I, I had a patient once who told me that her favorite visualization that she created whenever she had worry thoughts was to imagine herself holding a bunch of helium-filled balloons, brightly colored helium balloons. And she would take one of those balloons, they say a yellow one, and she would let it go, holding on to the others. And then she would watch that balloon as it slowly went up towards the blue sky, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and finally vanishing. And she would do this with each of the balloons until she was confidently out of that worry thought cycle. And you know, one thing about visualizations that's so powerful is that when we're stressed, when we're anxious, we're engaged in what we call the sympathetic nervous system. That's the alert, the fight flight emergency uh, system. And we are not really uh, at at a place where our body is happiest. 
But when you switch that over through maybe visualization, meditation, mindfulness, living, when you switch that over, you go into what we call the parasympathetic, often called the digest, what is it, digest? Uh, rest and digest. Rest and digest, that's it. So parasympathetic is where we want to go. We want to switch the switch. We want to get out of the stressful sympathetic nervous system, and we want to change our physiology and we change our physiology by engaging our mind in these practices that literally uh, are, are taking us away from the chemical stress that we feel and putting us into a, a place of real solace. So yeah, visualizations, excellent. Any other techniques you might suggest? Sure. There is a popular technique. It's called a grounding technique uh, where you ground yourself into the moment. And it is a sensory technique where it's called five, four, three, two, one. And so your first step is to find five things in your surrounding area that you can see. And if you have the capacity to talk out loud, you would actually say the five things out loud or in your head would be fine. Uh, then you would look for four things that you can um, touch and actually notice the sensation. So are you feeling the fabric of your clothing on your body? Are you feeling your ring on your finger? Are you feeling your glasses on the bridge of your nose? Um, things like, or maybe the air touching your skin. So you just notice uh, four things you can touch. Um, and then you would do three things that you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And of course, with the smell and the taste, if, you, if there's nothing in your immediate vicinity, uh, that's where the visualization can come in and you can imagine your favorite, um, your favorite smell or your favorite taste. Mm, that's true. Um, but I like that. Yeah. Yeah. By doing that, it, that actually reminds me of another thing you had taught me, Dad, which was that by engaging with your senses, um, you take yourself out of your head. Um, I remember when I used to have anxiety back in high school, um, you would give you used to give me like a little thing to take with me to school and I would actually play with it. like it could be a rock or a bracelet or whatever you would choose uh, to share with me and I would take it out and I would actually um, rub it through my fingers and it that would be a way to detach from the mind and bring me back to the current space that I was in so that technique um, it's just a little more gee what I remember from high school is you used to ask me for a ten dollar bill to rub with <laughs> before when you when you went to lunch no no you're right the, the there's you know rabbit's foot and little rocks and things, whatever it may be we have to kind of reclaim our thoughts and if you have a, a positive connection if you imbue an object with some kind of positivity and uh, and really just put it somewhere safe and put it in your pocket purse whatever and when you touch that, you know, it doesn't have magic. Of course, it doesn't have a spell over you. But what it does is it connects you back to the intention of that object. And sometimes we need to be reminded. I'll often tell uh, patients to write down the, the reasons they, they want to be positive or happy or whatever it might be, their intentions. Put it on a business card. Put it in your pocket. Because when you're in the throes of anxiety, depression, stress, addiction, your mind gets clouded. And we, we kind of leave our rational potentiality and we forget. 
So having these little reminders, whether it be a business card with a few sentences written on it or a little rock or a stone that reminds us of a more pleasant time, find, find your, your object and keep it handy. I, I agree with Lauren 100%. I like what you said uh, also about the intention. And a lot of people create what they call present moment reminders for themselves. And sometimes that's literally writing down their intention on a sticky note and putting it on the mirror in their bathroom where they might see a few times a day uh, or, or choosing something in their surrounding that when they walk past it or when they notice it, it's, it becomes their reminder to practice a moment of mindfulness. You know, last week you mentioned your friend who, uh, becomes mindful or reminds herself every time she goes through a doorway. And you know what? I've been doing that all week and it does work. Could you explain that? Because that, that, that was a great concept that stayed with me long after you and I stopped our talk last week. Sure. Yes. So uh, the, the door frame became a reminder for my friend. And I also use it as well when I can remember, but the door frame is a reminder that every time you walk under it, you take a moment to take a breath and to notice your present experience. So it can happen multiple times in a day, depending on how much you are wandering around your space. Uh, but it it's just a quick reminder and it's foolproof because it's not going anywhere. And it's just a quick way to remind yourself to root into your moment your experience. Mm. Yeah, there's so many, so many ways we could bring ourselves back to center, always coming back to center. And and I'm going to just, you know, reiterate something that's, that's always important to me, just working with emotional struggle. And that's, and that's the fact that we, we really have to learn to risk that self-trust. And I just, I just want to emphasize that the end game of emotional struggle is learning to trust self-trust because with that, we're, we're able to let life unfold. Without self-trust, when insecurity is running the show, you know, we're, we're relying on worry thoughts, on, on ruminations. We're relying on compulsivity. We're relying on trying to know the future before it happens. And we are really unable and ill-equipped to be in that moment. But with self-trust, we just know that when we are confronted with life tomorrow, the next day, we'll handle it. Now, that we don't know that we will, but with self-trust, you believe that. And optimism, no one knows the future. The optimist, the pessimist, they leap into the future, the past, but no one knows the future. But I think you'll agree with me, Lauren, that the optimist lives a very different life in the present. When you live with optimistic expectations, you're not sitting there hand-wringing and worrying. You're, you're really freed up and you're really giving yourself the opportunity to be more present. Do, do you kind of see that with optimism? Yes, I do. I do see that with optimism. I think that in the present moment, because the practice is to not have judgment attached, it it is what it is, as they say. Whatever un, unfolds is what it is. However, the lens at which you perceive it is your choice. Mm -hmm. And I think often when we don't have, like we were talking about expectations before, when we don't have too much residue in that moment that was premeditated, um, we can really experience the full moment without 
without the residue of expectation and we can see it from a lens of positivity. It is what it is. I, as I like to say, it ain't what it ain't. Um, but, you know, the thing that is so important about, about what you're saying is that when we judge, when we, you know, the world just is, it's not black, it's not white, it's not gray, it's, it's, it, it is what it is. And we color it. You know, it is our interpretation and our, our judgment that colors our world. So when, when you start to feel, especially if you're somewhat depressed, if you're starting to feel like this is a crummy world and, and this is a terrible place, well, keep in mind that the world is really what you make of it. And, you know, like the introductory song to my podcast is, it's what you make of it. And what we need to make of our world is to, to risk trusting, to be centered, to live more in that moment. Lauren, help me describe a path to follow. I'm, I'm trying to do that right now, but add a little bit to that. What's the best way to start trying to live our lives? Mm. I just had this thought pop into my mind. And I don't know if this directly answers your question, but it's worth saying. Uh, at my brother's wedding, my brother Justin got married in Greece a few years ago, and we were on a boat ride in the Aegean Sea, and it was just this palpable excitement on the on the boat ride, and they were going to get married a few hours later, and. I asked my brother, like, this is, you know, how, how are you taking this all in? Like, there's just so much happening. And, and he said, I wish I could just live here forever, like in this moment forever. And so we came up with this, with this idea that in that moment, we set a timer, a two minute timer, and we found a spot on the boat to just sit down in the midst of all the excitement. And for that, those two minutes, we engaged all of our senses to try and take this like mindful mental photo or video in our mind and still to this day both of us just say like in in any stressful moment we revisit that that moment and it's actually as if we were there and at at my wedding this past october justin reminded me of that and we took a 5 minute uh, mindful break to soak it all in and i'm so grateful that we did because mm. had we not done that i wouldn't have that clarity of of what of what that experience was um so it's i don't that Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's 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 just fantastic. Every adult, child, parent should should take that into mind and maybe incorporate that into their relationships, um, and and take that that time. You know, like you say, every once in a while, it's probably a good practice, even on a daily basis. You don't have to be on a boat ride in the sea, but but every once in a while to just take that practice, even if it's for a moment with those around you, those loved ones around you, especially during these hard quarantine times, and just just take in the sensations. They don't have to be good or bad or powerful or wonderful, but just, just as an experiment to just see how deeply you can touch, feel, experience the reality around you. It, it, it really does have a calming effect. You know, I'm thinking of um, a story of St. Thomas Aquinas, and the story goes that he was hoeing his garden. And while he was hoeing the garden, a neighbor came by and he said to him, uh, Thomas, what would happen if the world were to end this evening? And St. Thomas looked up and said, I would continue hoeing my garden. You see, the future doesn't exist. It's a mental abstraction. The present is all that exists. 
And, and I think it's important for everyone to realize that we only have the moment. Once we leave the moment, we've lost that moment. And it can never be retrieved. Now, I know it sounds fatalistic, but but nevertheless, moments are important. And it's the, the complete life. If we look at our entire life, what are we? But we're the aggregate of every moment that's ever preceded us. So how we're living our moments, uh, this is what I hear you trying to profess, Lauren, is to, to live your moments with, with a bit more awareness and a bit more intentionality. So add to that for me. What what would you say to live those moments more effectively? There is no past and there is no future. So if you are lost in your mind thinking about the past or the future, you really are missing your moment. And in, in a sense, you're missing your life. That's something that's always kind of in the background of my mind is, is how can I engage more fully with the moment? Really being clear on what is it that is happening and and how can you be non-judgmental about it and and fully alive in the moment and and it could be as simple as when you're having a conversation with somebody um just noticing how often our mind is not really listening Um, more times than not we're trying to create answers or theories to make sense of what the other person is saying so that we can then respond So even just a deep listening practice is a mindful practice. So when someone's talking, instead of formulating your own response, you're actually listening to what are the words they're saying and and letting that sort of like hit you and sink into you before you then change the focus and create your response. How important is it to really read, to listen, to hear what children are telling us? I think children are our best teachers. So for me, to listen to a child is is to learn and to go back to that time in life when everything was a miracle and life unfolded in this magical present moment sort of way. And of course, children can go into phases or moments where they're not present and, and it can be difficult. But uh, for the most part, when they're engaged in something that they're enjoying, um, they are really in the joy they're really enjoying what they're doing and and that to me is is the beauty of mindfulness is is for us to be able to return to that pure state of enjoying life and and finding meaning in the simple simple things when i was a kid we had big snowstorms and invariably we would build snow igloos and i know lauren we've done this here when you were growing up as well and a snow igloo is really, you just make a big pile of snow until it compacts and becomes somewhat easy to work with. And then you hollow out a core and then you go into that igloo. And the reason I bring that up is because I'll never forget when you go into a snow igloo, you have this muted light that comes through somehow filtered through the snow and you have this sound and it's, it's so muted and so different And if, you know, that's going to be my meditational place where I want to go now. Whenever I want to sit down and just clear my mind, I'm going to sit myself down in that mental igloo where the world itself becomes somewhat muted, where the sounds become muted and where everything else just seems quiet. Is, is it a good thing to, and I'm sure it must be, but is it, is it a good thing to try to everyone find their own quiet place in their mind? 
Yes, actually, that was our activity at school last week. Creating a peaceful place can be not only can it be a wonderful tool for finding peace, because, of course, our surroundings determine a lot about our thoughts, but it also can act as that as that present moment reminder we were talking about. Each time you pass your your place, you can uh, engage in mindfulness. And even if that place is imaginary, um, you can close your mind and visit it whenever you want hmm. well i you know i think we, we've kind of gone through a lot today in, in terms of being present i being present and being mindful the same thing right yeah same thing i just wanted to add to this quote that i found from from buddha and i think a lot of people don't realize how much practicing mindfulness can help themselves but also those around them and to be around someone who is present can actually be an amazing gift to to all others, even if they don't realize what's happening. There's this um, lightness about a person that that arrives in a space with presence, and so it can actually benefit all those around them. And the Buddha spoke and said, "In a family, if there is one person who practices mindfulness, the entire family will be more mindful because of the presence of one member." who lives in mindfulness, the entire family is reminded to live in mindfulness. If in one class, one student lives in mindfulness, the entire class is influenced. And I truly believe in those wow, words. That's really powerful. That, that, that is really worth pondering. And we affect people and others based on where and who we are in that moment. And a mindful person, a centered person, a calm person, a person who has achieved some degree of solace and presence, that has a resonant, you know, it's like tuning forks. It has a resonant effect. It, it does change others. Amazing. And I guess, Lauren, it wouldn't be far-fetched or it wouldn't be sacrilegious to say you're carrying on the Buddha in your own heart and with your own students, and you are kind of transmitting that light. I know you probably are much more humble and don't think of yourself that way, but uh, in a sense you are. You are giving these kids a part of you and that transmission is helping them see life in a different way. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, and I think that for me, the, the true joy is, is in experiencing the light from the children. It's like this this way of when you when you practice something like mindfulness, especially with children, at least there's a cumulative joy that arises, and and it's there's so much gratitude for for all that we do have, which exists right now. That's what I would have expected you to say that the light comes from the children, and and I think that this is what has been missing for just, and this is my personal opinion. Uh, I, I've always and often said and will continue saying that our school systems should have a psychology basis in the curriculum. Why wait till children are adults to deal with their psychology when they have to pay for it? Why not start teaching kids to live more effectively, to handle their stressors, to handle their emotions, and to have outlets and to have a recourse to such things as visualizations, meditation. Lauren, what you're doing is you are fulfilling my 
hope and expectation for what ought to be our educational system. And you are starting to help kids starting right at kindergarten. And you are starting to help kids avoid having to come and see someone like me when they grow up. Yeah, we always say at school that um, the the goal is to master your mind and restore your spirit. And and those with those two, with mastery of mind and a restored spirit, you can achieve anything, in my opinion. Well, I think this has been a wonderful discussion. In fact, so wonderful that I'm going to take a leap of faith and say that I think I, I, I enjoy working with you uh, in such a, a way that we could cover probably a lot of ground in a lot of different topics. And maybe we could do this on a regular basis. And, and if, if so, then I'd like to set that up because I could see where there's just so many different ways we could have gone today with this discussion. And I, I don't want to limit us to one episode or two episodes. So how about we, we try to team up and, and just you and I become a team for a while and, and let's just see where the spirit moves us. I love it. Thank you. I would love that. All right. So let's do it. And uh, so I'd like to thank you again for being my guest, but more importantly for being my daughter and the wonderful person that you are. And I am absolutely convinced as I am sure many people that you have touched in your, in your professional career have, have come to the conclusion that, we're really blessed to have someone like you around to shed that light. And you do shed that light. Be sure to visit my website, selfcoaching.net, where you can learn more about my self-coaching philosophy and check out my number one best-selling books, now published in 10 languages. So until next time, realize that being victimized by emotional struggle is not an option. By definition, victims are powerless. And you are not powerless. So remember, everything is hard until you make it simple. So join me each week and let's make it simple together. Reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way, life is what you make of it. Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems Hold on and fight, follow your heart This is your way Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams Don't surrender, there is more than it seems Hold on and fight, follow your heart This is your way, life is what you make of it